Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Inaya Follerin Iman. Hi. Coming up on today's show, Ukraine one year on, the rewriting of Roald Dahl and the SNP leadership race. So on the 24th of February, a year ago, Russia did the unthinkable and invaded Ukraine, a sovereign nation at the heart of Europe. This week, this anniversary has been marked by a surprise visit to Kiev by Joe Biden and by Vladimir Putin, who gave a rambling two-hour speech blaming the West for the war. Tom, before we talk about um, the more current events, should we cast our minds back to the very beginning? Because this was not only was the invasion unexpected, but the fight back was pretty unexpected too. No, I think that's exactly it. I mean, first the invasion shot the world and then the resistance shot the world. Um, obviously, the US intelligence services get a lot of undue credit in some respects over mm. the course of this conflict because of the fact that they were saying this is definitely going to happen, even in the face of a lot of um, scepticism from the common terror or even from a lot of people in Ukraine themselves. One prediction that really didn't pan out was what General Mark Milley reportedly said in the run-up to the invasion or in the after or in the immediate aftermath of it, I'm not sure which, that Kiev could have effectively fallen within 72 hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that this is why, you know, reportedly, you know, Zelensky was offered a, a offered a way out in which he utters that potentially apocryphal line that he needed ammunition rather than a ride and so on. I think that's worth sort of noting because obviously it's quite clear that Vladimir Putin completely under recognized the strength of kind of Ukrainian nationhood, Ukrainian resolve, and so on. But even the West did as well. I think I think that was one of the things that after the shock of the invasion, the shock of the resistance was really there. And I think this is often talked about in terms of bravery, which of yeah. course it is, the incredible heroism that we've seen, not just from the armed forces themselves, but even everyday citizens. You remember kind of in those early days, you know, even whether it was the the guys on Snake Island telling the Moskva to go fuck themselves, or whether it was the old lady saying to the Russian soldier, put these sunflower seeds in your pocket, so at least when you die, something will grow mm. out of it. Um, but also I think it, one thing that's undervalued is also the fact that where that strength is drawn from, where yeah. that courage is drawn from, is the fact that for all the talk from Putin or anyone else that Ukraine is a kind of bullshit nation, that it was at least a sizable chunk of it was going to welcome or if not roll over in the face of this invasion, that there was that base of national fellow feeling, solidarity and resolve to repel this invasion. I think that was the thing that which is, continues to inspire people, but it's worth remembering how it wasn't necessarily counted on, particularly by the Western powers when this all kicked off. I mean, that kind of gives the lie to this narrative that the West is behind it all, that the West is pulling the strings because really the West didn't actually have a clue what was going to happen. When yeah, it and there was also Biden talking about minor incursions. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> Maybe being tolerated well, earlier on. So. Yeah, but Biden sort of flip-flopped from saying, um, yeah, prior to the war that, you know, Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin will not remain uh, president while I'm president mm -hmm. and then saying, yes, we'll tolerate a minor incursion into Ukraine. Yeah. So there was that level of confusion. Yeah. And on top, I mean, the West's response hasn't been perfect, but I think many people assumed because of um, the response to Crimea that they weren't yeah. really going to do anything. So in that sense, um, that challenged perceptions also. But just on the point that you said about the West pulling the strings, well, actually, there's been at many points quite a confused response and a, a disoriented response, particularly on the continent yeah. because of uh, Europe's dependence on Russia for, for, for energy supply. So I think the narrative that the West are kind of pulling the strings is again just a attempt to avoid 
the reality of the conflict. Yeah, definitely. And and talking about that kind of, um, I guess, you know, that sort of lack of Western unity. I mean, in obviously, most everyone in the West pretty much supports Ukraine, mm-hmm. but we can't necessarily agree how to support them. Mm-hmm. And in, in recent months, um, you know, the debate has been over offensive weapons, over whether do we send tanks, the debate sort of moving on to do we send fighter jets. <laughs> I mean, Tom, what have you made of that kind of discussion? Because it has seemed slightly a, a level removed from the conflict in some ways. Yeah, and I, I think it, as you say, it just gives the light to the idea that there was this kind of unified Western response. I think there's a sort of tendency and a desire really for Western unity, Western purpose, Western self-confidence to be just automatically rejuvenated by this particular conflict, mm. the West's um, support of Ukraine in it. Um, but at the same time, it has showed a lot of the cracks at the same time, as well as um, one thing that's often neglected as well as the, is the broader international picture. You know, there's not a lot of time spent thinking about, or at least not nearly enough in kind of Western commentary circles about the fact that there are large um, parts of the world, the majority of the world really, which is even neutral or yeah. in some cases actually pro-Russia. And the, the the lack of grasping of that nettle, I think, has been quite striking. But uh, so many people have been kind of discombobulated by this conflict. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair to say in a way you know, that's not unsurprising, but it it has been striking to me how it's kind of shown up whether it was the latent hypocrisies or it's just scrambled the brains of people who previously claimed to be quite principled in some of these particular issues. So one of which you had the sort of populist right, particularly in America, people who are constantly talking about national sovereignty, you know, and concerns about borders and so on remarkably relaxed about this, you know, violent incursion Mm. (laughs) into, uh, sovereign nations borders and then of course you had the kind of anti-imperial left who did at certain points become kind of like apologists for russian imperialism they're Mm. kind of so preoccupied were they with the genuine folly of western foreign policy over recent decades and so on that they kind of ascribe russia no agency whatsoever Mm. and also in other situations kind of would almost in in their kind of arguments would almost kind of make apologies for the idea of great power paternalism, that, you know, you're getting into Russia's sphere of influence. Yeah. How dare you? Ru- America wouldn't tolerate this, so why should Russia? So in so many different ways, I think it scrambled people's brains and showed up the kind of cracks that had already potentially existed. Um, but I think part of that, as much as anything else, is a testament to what a profound shock to the system this conflict was, particularly in a supposedly post-conflict end-of-history era that we were allegedly living in. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of um, alludes to the way that it was quite quickly fed or... Actually, it took a fairly long, but it, it, it was, you know, part of the culture war and people couldn't see it as um, a distinct issue. So you will have yeah. people suddenly, you know, what, where you stand on Zelensky seems to have very little to do with, um, you know, your actual, uh, what, what he's done. It's, are you on the right side of history or the bad side of history? Do you see him as corrupt? Do you see him as yeah. a saint? And at some points it's become, it's got pretty nasty. I mean, some people, I think in the early days in particular, they've quiet down quite substantially, but almost suggesting um, that Putin was a kind of anti-woke figure against (laughs) the bulwark of moral degradation in the West. And Mm. I mean, it just really just illuminates the moral confusion of many political um, ideologies at the moment that you can make that kind of comparison. Yeah. And we should talk a bit about the sort of Russia question as well, because you know, um, obviously there have been lots of sanctions against Russia. Um, some in America probably would like to see a total humiliating defeat mm-hmm. of Russia. But even that aspect has been sort of dragged into the culture wars where we've had these um, cancellation of Russian artists, Russian plays, Russian composers. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you want to 
you know, remind us a bit about that, Tom. Yeah, it's it's easy to forget about it, partly because it was um, quite a while away now, but also probably because a lot of these slightly Russophobic tendencies have been sort of in, quietly internalised now. But there was that really shocking period in which, you know, what was it like the Cardiff Philharmonic cancelling Tchaikovsky? Because obviously he is ultimately to blame for this particular yeah. conflict, mm-hmm. apparently. Um, Russian sports people, uh, youth, you know, pianist child prodigies being stopped from playing. There was a, there was a uh, Russian film in a in a Scottish, I believe, film festival which was cancelled, and you saw this all too predictable but regrettable kind of response, which was to treat all Russian citizens as effectively, you know, guilty for the crimes of their state. Something that which you know we really shouldn't do that in any circumstance. Although yeah. there's a fair few uh, countries under all we do tend to do that with these days. And also seem to be playing naturally into uh, the Russian state's narrative, which mm. is to say this isn't because the West supports Ukraine in its fight for self-determination or whatever that is. It's purely because they hate Russia, they want to take us down, they hate you. Um, and it's, it can only help but vindicate that particular perspective. you know. And that's, that's one of the things that's been deeply regrettable is that it almost feels like those kinds of boycotts, that kind of illiberal cultural responses is, is just sort of baked in now yeah and was very it was very difficult to challenge at the time as pro-ukraine as you wanted to be yeah if you said it's russophobic and gross that you're talking about either expelling russian citizens on mass or stopping them playing at concert halls and so on it was a very unpopular position in sort of commentary when that happened mm. uh, one thing um the west has um done for ukraine is welcome a lot of um refugees um that seems to be completely uncontroversial. That seems to have skipped past the kind of usual debates about um, immigration that we have. I mean, do you think that's a sign of, you know, genuine solidarity? Oh, absolutely. And actually the support remains consistently high. And I think this isn't necessarily about the British people, but I do think it does demonstrate that the British people aren't just rampant anti-immigration, that they actually have Mm. a nuanced position and are able to judge what is the right instance and so on. And I think that that's been... Um, a really positive demonstration, not just in the UK, but also in Hungary and Poland of ordinary people opening their arms and Mm. welcoming and showing that solidarity that it's not always the opportunity to do so. And some people have taken this even a step further by going out to to fight. Um, I think a a lot of people, maybe the mainstream press, have been actually fairly condemnatory of this, talking Mm. about it as reckless, but isn't it just, again, just a serious sign of solidarity i mean there's there's nothing more inspiring than that you know mm. these individuals who have taken this fight as their own there's many people who also i mean this is what real internationalism looks like it's not yeah. about putting a ukraine flag in your twitter bio it's not about sharing the right hashtags putting your life on the line for principles that you think are important and showing that level of solidarity with uh, people of a different country who are facing this kind of invasion is incredible the amount of people as well incidentally who are veterans of, say, fighting with the Kurds in Syria who have yeah. then gone out to Ukraine, people like Mesa Gifford, friend of the show who's been on before, who is out there fighting at the moment, um, Sean Pinner and Aidan Aslin, who were the two very high-profile UK fighters, prisoners of war captured by Russia, were in both cases, I think, again, um, veterans of um, battles in Syria against Islamic State and so on. And it's just been unfortunate. For obvious reasons, you know, people want to chide the government for there was that brief moment where Liz Truss's foreign secretary almost seemed to be encouraging this. That's yeah. obviously something that it's very difficult for a government to do for obvious <laughs> reasons. And obviously that became an op- another opportunity to bash the government, which many people let to on, but still I don't think that should detract from how inspiring this is. You might mm. not want to encourage your sons and daughters to do it, but we should still be in awe of people who are mm. prepared to make that kind of step. And and finally, I mean, what ultimately, and I, what 
is at stake here is national sovereignty. And do you think that's something that people have will realise that they've probably neglected over the years as a as an important value? So yeah, and I, you know, I, I remember when Boris Johnson had made that comparison somewhat, and there was people saying, "Well, how could you make that comparison?" He's talking about Brexit. Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, obviously, it's completely different situations, but I think. We agree when it comes to the Ukraine conflict that actually national sovereignty isn't just the cause for it isn't just a rhetorical yeah. um, device is actually something meaningful, substantive, worth fighting for, and in some cases worth dying for in many cases. And I think that that does give um, a renewed meaning to the importance in the context of the conversations that we've been having um, over the last few years. And so, whilst I think. For us, you know, it, it, it's important and a reminder, but whether or not that recognition is going to actually be made in, in the places that it needs to be made about the importance of national sovereignty, I think is still an ongoing debate. So the publishers, Puffin, have rewritten vast amounts of um, Roald Dahl's classic books. Essentially, they've taken the red pen to this children's author, um, changed characters, words, anything that might be deemed offensive by so-called sensitivity readers. So we've learned, for instance, that Augustus Gloop from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is no longer going to be fat. Miss Trunchbull from Matilda is no longer be no longer described as female. And the Oompa Loompas yes, are no longer titchy and tiny. <laughs> and they're gender neutral for good measure as well. Um, Inara, what have you made of this uh, rewrite? I mean, it's just, frankly, it, it's crazy. It's absurd. It, it, it's so dull. I mean, sensitivity readers are, you know, have such a corrosive and pernicious effect on, on the literary industry um, and freedom of speech, essentially rewriting not just you know amazing classic works that have had huge influence over society but um actually authors now that are trying to um explore different characters yeah. as well that they are having um them completely rethought in the name of sensitivity readers a complete attack on kind of artistic and literary freedom and as you've just uh, described many of those descriptions are just frankly absurd and yeah. it just shows you just not just the echo chamber and the conformity in many of these circles that they can't see that this is um, something that is totally out of touch with the majority um, of people. And I think it's been really interesting listening to the arguments that have been put forward. Oh, it's just, um, you know, a commercial mm. venture. I mean, firstly, who, who is demanding this? Who is yeah. asking for this? So I, I, I just think it's yet another example. And it's, it's a, a more kind of joking, trivial end. But we see on one end this happening, but then on the other end, you know, what's happening with Salman Rushdie and the fact that there's actually a much more um, bloody and dangerous culture of censorship. And I, I, I do see it as part of that same culture of just a hostility to ideas. Well, there's, there's more than one way to burn a book, as uh, mm. Ray Bradbury famously said. Mm. Tom, I was going to bring on Salman Rushdie, actually, because mm. he has um, expressed his outrage at this mm. censorship. He's a man who knows what it's like to be censored. No, definitely. And mm. I think that was why it was, uh, again, such a brilliant intervention. I think there was a lot of people who were slightly caught off guard by this particular act of mm. cultural vandalism. I mean, there was, as is always the case, there's an attempt to make some justifications for it. People wouldn't want to sound like the sort of person to get booked on GB News if bend over backwards to say, <laughs> actually, maybe it's fine for these reasons. But even amongst those sorts of people, there was still a kind of, mm, this is a bit crazy. Yeah, they've gone a bit far this time. They've gone a bit far. This is a bit mad. And I, and I, 
and because it is, is the, yeah. the first thing. I mean, not only are many of the examples ridiculous, as you sort of point out, not least because Roald Dahl is fated and enjoyed because of the fact that there's a darkness to his work. Mm. There's a bit of, there's a kind of latent malice to many of his <laughs> characters, not so latent many of the time. You know, I think he once said that um, he tries he might he can't stop his characters being horrendously nasty to each other yeah and that's part of what the appeal was mm. you know that's something which i think children in particular despite the um sort of slightly kind of costed way we tend to approach them do enjoy that kind of that flicker of the sort of darker side of literature and that's something that yeah. you do very effectively so on the one hand it makes no sense like why would you cleanse roald Dahl of precisely what really made him so distinctive in the first place the other thing that makes it that bit more sinister is that in in what sense when you're taking these works and changing them hundreds of times in many cases in some cases grafting on entirely new sentences mm. getting rid of entire words like fat has gone from all of the books apparently yeah. <laughs> you just can't use that there's a certain point in which this is no longer his work it's yeah his name on it if you want to buy a new edition of this book you go to his publisher this is what they'll sell you but in a way it's not his mm. and that's something which should has disquieted people and should, even if they haven't necessarily got the vocabulary to express it, or they're too scared of being seen as a culture warrior for raising concerns about it. For standing up for, for free speech, basically. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things this has highlighted is the sort of broader phenomenon of the sensitivity reader. And obviously we can know what's been changed because we've all read the old versions. We, you know, we know what they're like and, and people have been able to make comparisons. But this screening is going on all the time, yeah. behind the scenes, we don't even know what is being cancelled before publication mm. right now. I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, th this is this case has obviously got um, a lot of attention, but a similar thing happened to the author Kate Clanchy. Mm. You know, her her work and that caused a, a lot of controversy. And you know, I, as I just mentioned, I just think that this is deeply anti-democratic. Many of oftentimes the language that you know, is used, things are not even used in every day. Yeah. Um, and I just think it's, it's really sad. I think it's really unfortunate um, that this is happening. And so few people, despite the fact that there has been more um, disquiet over this, still there isn't that um, systematic pushback in the publishing industries, the yeah. guardians of, of literature to actually call this out yeah that's, that's the other scary thing isn't it is from within the publishing mm. industry the barbarians are in the gates mm. i think is how you described it mm. uh, earlier this week it's this was this review was um initiated by the roll doll story company mm. themselves um whilst it was still in the possession of the doll family they've since sold it to netflix essentially um and it's something which this is all just part of the kind of the common sense of that particular industry. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to grapple with. You know, this isn't about, you know, in what sense can you kind of push back against that if this is just what everyone within that particular world thinks is entirely acceptable. But it obviously flows from a general sort of elite consensus, which is incredibly myopically preoccupied with the way in which words and culture warp people, yeah. as far as they can tell. Particularly I mean, children. Particularly children. But it was interesting because we, we often talk about how we live in an infantilised culture in mm. which adults are treated like children. The flip side of that seems to be that children are treated like kind of robots, essentially, yeah. is that you have to program them with the right messages at the right age. Otherwise, you 
don't know what kind of prejudices could curdle in their little brains. So you mm. see this kind of preoccupation with children's literature in the form of this Roald Dahl story. And the sort of more absurd flip side of it is these new books oh, yeah. that are written for no other reason than propaganda, effectively. Yeah. Anti-racist baby, my first book of protest, <laughs> feminist baby, and all this. Kind of <laughs> this little Ruth Bader Ginsburg colouring books or whatever. <laughs> what's, what's interesting, it's ridiculous. And it is dragging art and culture closer towards propaganda mm. that's the kind of the underlying message so much this stuff is that everything has to be put to work has yeah to say the right thing impart the right message but i'm also i'm also convinced it is very likely to repel children away from art mm. and culture and literature um because it's precisely that ability to explore the mm. in some cases the slightly more dark things the slightly more imaginative things that actually makes it work and when you've got a situation like in one of these edits like in the witches where the they've decided that they can't where they were originally posing as cashiers in the supermarket. They have to be actually posing in plain sight as top scientists and businesswomen. You just think this is denigrating art and creativity to such an extreme extent. You even have to have like girl boss messages encoded Uh, in this. (laughs) Then we've, we've we've kind of lost the, we've kind of just sort of lost the game in that. Yeah. And it's such, it's just so bad. It's so, um, it's just so on the nose a lot yeah. of the time. Mm. And actually, we have seen it not just in the um, literature world, but also in, in Hollywood. Yeah. So many remakes have been you know, girl boss characters yeah. And, yeah. and men talking about how patriarchal they are. And <laughs> actually, you know, it just completely turns off the fans. Yeah. And actually, oftentimes when the fans no longer watch it and complain and they're told that they're, they're racist. Exactly, and bigoted. So you kind of just think, well, what... What more can you do <laughs> if even just um, people reacting against it doesn't seem to make the kinds of impacts um, because it's just so entrenched? So the uh, race is on to replace Nicola Sturgeon as SNP leader after uh, she resigned last week. I think it's fair to say the race is a bit of a car crash so far. We've got three leading candidates. Um, we've got Ash Reagan, the former um, community secretary, Hamza Youssef, the health secretary, and Kate Forbes, the Mm. finance secretary. Tom, should we talk a bit about Kate Forbes first? Because she's been getting a lot of flack for her Christian beliefs. No, it's it's really interesting um, the way in which her candidacy has basically, at least in terms of how it's being talked about, it may well turn out to be true, I'm not sure, has eventually been sunk over the course of about 24, 48 hours because Mm. of the fact that the views that everyone basically knew that she already held, she chose to express them in public. Um, So naturally, she's a evangelical christian um she belongs to a very socially conservative scottish church um has previously um made pro-life statements um and she was essentially on maternity leave during the gender recognition row Uh, Mm. many people suspected that was um if not kind of orchestrated then certainly very convenient yeah because of the fact that she's obviously a high-ranking cabinet minister but almost certainly wasn't going to vote for that legislation. Uh, during interviews this week, she made it clear that she wouldn't have. She also made clear that she wouldn't have voted for gay marriage, given the fact that yeah. she's an evangelical conservative Christian and so <laughs> believes that um, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not really a big shocker. Um, the response, again, hasn't been surprising, but has been pretty ridiculous. Um, not only have you had the kind of usual kind of figures in the liberal press, so this makes her unfit to be Scottish First Minister and to lead the SNP, even some of the people who backed her. So I think in the in the mor- the morning after she gave some of these interviews about five of the SNP figures who had actually formally backed her yeah pulled out apparently her even her own campaign manager is actually going to step down <laughs> at this particular point and you just think this is so incredibly 
strange. Um, first of all, because I think what we're seeing here, and we, we've seen other cases of this before that we might get into, is it's a kind of like reverse r- religious test now. Yeah. Like if you happen to hold socially conservative religious views, it's now kind of established that that should bar you from public office. Mm. Um, people try and dress it up in different ways. She's not right to lead the SNP or whatever. But I really don't buy that because the fact the reason the SNP exists... Yeah is to get Scotland out of the United Kingdom. Yeah. What that has to do with gay marriage, what that has to do with gender self-ID, what that <laughs> yeah. has to do with children outside of wedlock makes no sense to me whatsoever. And whilst I think it's therefore quite likely that the SNP membership and faithful could turn against Kate Falls because of all of this, mm. I think they might be missing a bit of a trick, partly because her main competitor, Hamza Yusuf, is a clown, we might get into that, yeah. but also because of the fact that I think people do actually like people who have the courage of their convictions, even mm. if they don't actually share those convictions. And yeah. I, I think this kind of treatment of her mm. is not going to endear people to the SNP, even if they are still quite unassailable in Scottish politics. No. Yeah, no, I mean, this is just, it is intolerant, isn't it? Let's be honest. Especially as she said, she doesn't want to bring these ideas to mm. politics. Yeah, you know, I, I do think it is fair to say that, you know, if you hold certain beliefs in some sense, almost by definition you'd be your your politics would be shaped by that but when you talk about when people talk about unpopularity i mean nicola sturgeon the the reason for her demise was pre- pretty much one of the most unpopular yeah. policies in you know in the last 10 years in scotland trying to get male rapists into female prisons so in the context <laughs> of you know popularity um in terms of ideas that are being pushed forward i think you know they might be pretty even in that respect but ultimately you know i i think it's for the snp voters and i think as you rightfully mentioned snp is fundamentally about scotland leaving um the uk and so it's neither a liberal party or a conservative party it's what the particular membership at that time make it but i think it's also just shown why the snp has leaned so heavily um, intercultural issues over the last few years, whether that's green issues, trans issues, um, free speech or general anti-Tory sentiment. Because beyond just the basic desire to leave the UK, there's nothing really holding them together. Yeah. Um, and so actually it's quite hollow beyond that. Well, it's, yeah, clearly they don't agree on what they should do uh, yeah. outside the UK. It's just, you touched on the green thing. Even that has come up, which is interesting. Um, Ash Regan has said that she wants to delay net zero to save um, Scottish oil jobs. I think we should talk a bit more about Hamza Youssef. Mm. Um, mm. He's health secretary at the moment. He's thought to have not done a great job running the NHS, but perhaps he's someone we'll have discussed po- uh, on this podcast previously for his role in the Hate Crime Act. Mm. This is the um, act which essentially sends people to prison, potentially for seven years, for stirring up hatred, in its words, including in your own home. Mm. Yeah, you know, to me when we talk about the SNP as a Liberal Party, I mean, that some of the policies they've tried to forward over the last 10 years have been some of the most illiberal policies mm, yeah. um, that we've seen in Europe, let alone the UK. And yeah, the hate crime bill would criminalise people um, having talk, you know, talking about race issues or, or gender issues that didn't conform to a particular progressive orthodoxy. Mm. And he was so uh, comfortable with that. And I think it was quite interesting, Kemi Badenoch in a... Um, in a podcast interview, you know, she said that um, while she doesn't agree with Kate Forbes, she respects the fact and actually quite thinks is a good thing that a politician would say what they think yeah. um, and not necessarily just say what they think will forward their um, political career. And I think that actually Hamza Youssef, I, I don't really believe a word that he says because I don't know what reason he's saying that because mm. he's always... 
um, just seemingly done whatever was the illiberal orthodoxy at a given time. And he's definitely the sort of continuity Sturgeon figure. It seems mm. whatever she wants, that's that's what has happened. He's, I mean, po- he's positioned himself as that quite. Yeah. I think he's, he's even today when we were recording this. Um, all you know, Sturgeon all but kind of endorsed him, suggesting that whoever leads us should be you know stick to our progressive agenda and so on. But it is it is funny. It's going back to the point you were making, Nye, where it's like we've got Hamza Yusuf. He was actively campaigning to criminalise dinner table conversations. Mm. He wants to continue on with this policy of letting men into women's spaces and even prisons. Um, he's also got a dreadful record as health secretary. There's actually quite a damning report which has been out today in terms of that. Uh, you know, he got up in the Scottish Parliament not too long ago and was decrying the fact that all these different various kind of heads of industry or the judiciary were white. I and mean, Scotland's a 96% white country. Are you that shocked? <laughs> we're going to watch this clip because people need to see it. The Lord President, white. The Lord Justice Clark, white. Every High Court judge, white. The Lord Advocate, white. The Solicitor General, white. The Chief Constable, white. Every Deputy Chief Constable, white. Every assistant chief constable, white. The head of the law society, white. The head of the faculty of advocates, white. Every prison governor, white. That's the, so that's the same choice, the yeah. continuity. Oh who's, who's the nutcase here? <laughs> the person who, happen, who is religious and therefore has religious views. I mean, but this is, this is what you end up with. But I think it's interesting. That's another well. aspect because people have not been grilling Hamza Yusuf on his religious views yeah. because he's a practicing Muslim. But he's, he's a good example of how it's like you're allowed to be religious in public life yeah. as long as you are basically the sort of Lib Dem version of that religion. Mm. Not to bring Tim Farron into this, but basically if, you, <laughs> if you're religious, but you don't, as long as you're not socially conservative, it's fine. Spiritual. Spiritual yeah. is fine. Magic <laughs> FM and the Chilterns, as David yeah. Cameron used to say. That's all right. But, but he, I just think he comes across really badly. I don't know if either of you saw this, but he, he um, like fell over. Mm, like, on his little scooter, yeah. yeah. And he got really angry at people on social media for taking the mick out of them. I'm like, can't you even laugh at yourself? I mean, it I was quite funny. There's I videos think he of him. wanted the Hate Crime Act to be, have been in place yeah. then, so he could lock people up. There's videos of him arguing with nurses. <laughs> and this, this is the other thing where you think, you know, one doesn't want to put too much of a premium on competence in politics or whatever. But I think this again shows how deranged the SNP have become by identity politics because you've got, in the figure of Kate Forbes, she shoots to um, prominence because of the fact that her predecessor as finance minister quits on the day of the budget and gets mm. very loads of plaudits because of how good she was. Um, generally seen to be very competent in a brief and so on. Hamza Yusuf is a bungling idiot, essentially. Yeah. But he's all right because he believes that you can become a woman phrase by clicking your fingertips. Mm. That's how far things have gone. In yeah. relation to this, and even with Scottish independence, it's like again, signalling the right views and all of these modish cultural stuff is more important even than having a sane leader who might be able to actually win you back some exactly. support to get Scotland out of the union, which is supposedly what it's supposed to be about. But well, unlucky Scotland. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.